0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. They're some of our favorites. From 1945 to 1992, the United States conducted 1,054 nuclear tests as part of the nuclear arms race with Soviet Russia. Many of these tests were conducted in Nevada, where soldiers were sent to be tested on by military scientists and upper brass trying to figure out the psychological and health effects brought on by the use of nuclear weapons. One of those soldiers was Toby Madrid, the sheriff of Conejos County in Colorado. Here's Richard Munez, a listener and former policeman who worked for Toby, with the story of this atomic marine.
1: The only two people I know of that ever heard this story is myself and his son, Jr. As far as Jr. knows, he never told this story to anyone else. Toby was in the Marines. And in 1951 to 1957, out the Nevada Proving Grounds, it was a small camp, it was called Camp Desert Rock. And it was barracks and mess halls and things like that, but it had one mission. One purpose, it was to support military personnel while tests involving the atomic bomb were conducted. I remember Sheriff Toby de Madrid, we were in his office. If you can call a broom closet with a light and a desk in uh, an office. He had a cup of coffee in his hands and he has feet upon the desk. I mean, it was a totally laid back attitude but I could see the tension in his jaw. And the funny part about it was he wasn't looking at me. He wasn't looking at J.R. He was looking at the wall. I had this distinct impression that if he bothered to look at either one of us, we'd never hear the story. He said, they stuck us out in the middle of nowhere. And if you've ever been out that section of Nevada, it's pretty much the middle of nowhere. And he went on to say that they told us we'd be part of an atomic bomb test. Now, the name of these tests that I looked up later on was called the Desert Rock Exercises. And this was what we call Desert Rock 4 Operation Tumbler Snapper. Well, he said they took them out there, and they were there for several, different day, several days beforehand. The sheriff said they took them out there had them dig trenches they built uh, defensive fortified positions all that stuff now the idea was they would be able to stand in these or squat in them provide for some cover and then he said I remembered as we were digging there were trucks carrying tanks and jeeps and things like that some of the vehicles were towing artillery pieces out there and some of the Marines he was with went out with them and they came back saying how they'd set up dummies that were in uniform and some of them were standing up some were lying down that kind of stuff now, I went on to research a little bit more, and it seems to be that he was out there for what they called the Shot Dog Nuclear Test. And this happened on May 1st, 1952, and involved the dropping of what we call a Mark Seven bomb. Now, the Air Force was doing the drops, and they were using either B-50s or, or B-45s to do these. So he said the day of the test, they got him up, uh, they had breakfast, and they took him out there to the site. And they got in their trenches, and so what they were told to do. They were told to crouch below the rim of the trench, have their faces down and their eyes closed when the blast happened. Now they would get plenty of warning beforehand that this was going to happen. You know, they'd give them a warning, the bomber was, would know, hear the bombers coming in, stuff like that, and they needed to be doing this. So you said along around 8.30 or so, they heard the aircraft coming in and that's when the warning happened. So they climbed in the trenches and they got in the position they they were told to get into. He had said he was crouched down, he had his head down, his eyes closed. And even with this, all of a sudden he said there was light. He seriously felt that he had actually seen the blast of the bomb. Now what he had witnessed here was the detonation of a 19 kiloton bomb and it exploded about a thousand meters above the ground. And then he went on to say that the light faded. But as it faded, there was thunder like he'd never heard before. And then there was wind. I mean, the wind just came up and it was so intense it rocked him back against the back of his uh, trench. And then the wind reversed directions, came back and pushed him face forward into into uh, the front of the trench. And so then a, second, a few seconds later, came the order to leave the trenches. So they climbed out and as he put it, we've all seen, movies of uh, the mushroom cloud an atomic bomb generates. But he says seeing it in real life, it was like, it just wasn't real. You know, you can't, you can't wrap your mind around something like this. And you can sit there and look at it and say something humans built generated this. And he said it was already towering up into the sky. And He compared it to something that was like a cloud that was boiling up from hell. And they told him to start walking forward and they did. He went on to relate that as they moved along, he started seeing some of the things that had been set up a few days before. Like for one location, you remember seeing a Sherman tank. And he said it looked like the Sherman tank had been swatted aside by, uh, by some giant's hand. And then he started encountering some of these dummies that had been set up. Some were almost burnt up entirely. Others were smoldering. So they kept walking. They got within about three quarters of a mile of where the bomb had exploded, and they stopped them. They turned them around and marched them back out of there. And he said, he remember hearing somebody saying it had gotten, it was too hot to go much further. And while well, that basically meant it was too radioactive. They marched him uh, to a certain site. There they swept him off, hosed him off. And he said, he was actually surprised by how much dust came off of him and his uh, platoon. And rather than keep the uniform he'd been wearing, he wadded it up and threw it away. Like I said, that's the only time that we know of, as myself and Jr., that uh, Toby actually ever talked about the day of the bomb. A lot of people wound up getting sick and dying because of exposure to fallout. Thing is, I don't think a lot of these people knew what they were headed for. They were at a pivotal moment in history, and they didn't realize it. I know the sheriff didn't.
0: And this is why we routinely celebrate our veterans and not just those that were killed in action or who were on the battlefield in action, because our soldiers serve in many distinct and dangerous ways, as you've just heard. Toby Madrid's story here on Our American story. We continue here with our American stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show, as you well know. And often it's not the rich and the famous or the people who've innovated or done extraordinary things and everybody knows about. It's It's the ordinary folks in this country doing extraordinary things. And that brings us to the story of Wendy Caldwell. She is the oldest cadet to graduate from Houston's police academy. Faith brings us the story.
2: Wendy Caldwell is a 54-year-old mounted patrol officer. This is actually her second time working for the Houston Police Department. She first went to the academy in 1993 and graduated that same year. She was then assigned to a patrol station.
3: After having three years of service, then I applied and went to the mounted patrol unit, um, where I stayed until 1998. And... uh, During that time, I had gotten married, and uh, we had our first child. It just really felt like it was a better calling to stay at home and raise the kids. So that's what I did. I chose to resign my position at the police department and raise the kids, and that's what I did for the next 18 years.
2: What was it like going from being a police officer to a stay-at-home mom?
3: I got to experience all kinds of things, you know you know everything that you you hope you get to see when your kids are growing up there when they say their first word or when they when they take their first steps and uh, uh, you know i got to be that that mom that drove the kids to dance and baseball practice and I was privileged to homeschool my kids for a good portion of their uh, academic years and so it was it was very fulfilling it was really nice it, it, it was um, much different than being, you know, going going to be a full-time mom where, I mean, there is no manual to being a mother. You just are and you figure it out along the way and if you're lucky you have family and friends that can help you along the way but for the most part it's it's kind of a steep learning curve, you know, and you um, when the kids are little, my kids were 15 months apart, It's 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 a lot of work. It's a lot of work, you know, and it's not like going to a nine-to-five job every day. Um, there's no sick days. There's no time off. There's no vacation days. There, There isn't any of that stuff. You you are on call 24-7, you know, 365 days a year. But on the flip side of that, the reward is, it's just tremendous. It's, It's incredible to... I wouldn't. I wouldn't have traded it for the world. But I did go through a small identity, you know, shift there, and I realized uh, sitting on the riding lawnmower one summer, um, one summer day, driving around. I said, you know, life is good. I I get to I get to do this, and I get to raise my kids, and I and um, life is good. So a great moment, you know, to realize that I was happy and satisfied, and that. Uh, You know, it's a big change. It's it's scary. I I left something that I loved. I had a horse that I loved, um, and into something that I, you know, had no idea how it was going to turn out or or what was going to happen. And it was, you know, those are scary moments. Those can be a little frightening. How did Wendy
2: end up back with the Houston Police Department after staying home with the kids?
3: after after being married uh we were married almost 20 years uh no we were married 20 years at that point cuz we were married a couple years before we started having children and um we went through a really rough time and ended up getting a divorce um, and that was that was really tough um so i had to you know think about well gosh you know what am i going to do i I've got to go back to work Um, what am I going to do I haven't done anything for the last 18 years I have some college I don't have a college degree Um, and my my resume basically says stay-at-home mom and who's gonna hire me I'm 50 almost I was 52 years of age at the time and and I'm thinking oh my gosh what am I gonna do Coincidentally, I was playing softball, a co-ed softball with uh, a group of friends, and uh, one of them just happened to be a sergeant in the recruiting division for HPD. And I had v- done some visiting with a, an old friend of mine from the Harris County Sheriff's Department, and she she suggested that I attempt to uh, challenge the T.C.O.L. exam, which is the state licensing exam, which means I would study and then challenge the, apply to challenge the exam, and then once I did that, I could, I could be certified again, and then I would have to have an agency pick up my commission, so I was chatting with my recruiting sergeant friend, and uh, asked him how difficult he thought it would be to do that, and he says, well, why are you thinking about coming back, and I said, well, I don't think uh, I'm eligible to come back to HPD, and he goes, well, hold on a second, let me, let me double check that, so he checked with his lieutenant, and apparently I was eligible. There was a, a gentleman, coincidentally, that was a brother to uh, a gentleman that I had graduated with the first time in the academy that came back to the department at the age of 50, and he set precedents for the police department that if you were a former HPD officer and had left, as long as you could fulfill the the all the requirements and do the physical, um, physical training that you were eligible to come back. And so I was able to come back to HPD, uh, with the stipulation that I had to complete the entire six and a half month Academy again. So that process began and, um, came back August 29th of, um, 2016 and graduated the Academy again in uh, March 16th of 2017.
2: What were the two experiences of the Academy like for Wendy?
3: They were completely different for me. Uh, The first time I went through I was 29 years of age and graduated at 30. So I was, you know, back then I, I was into I kept myself in pretty good shape. I I still do, but you know there's a, there's a big difference between 30 and 50, and <laughs> most people figure that out as they age. But um, the this time around it was much more it was much more difficult. They had ramped up the physical uh, the the PT portion of it, the physical training, so it was a lot harder than it was last time. Uh, we did a lot more running. We did. A lot more hills. We did, uh, you know, it was like a, a basic training, uh, army basic training. You know, we did, we did log carries and and all kinds of stuff. You know, we did fireman carries. We did, we did, you know, the whole gamut of physical training that you would expect to see in any boot camp or um, police academy training. And so, my body did not hold up as well this time. I had a lot of, uh, I had some tendinitis going on I had some you know but I but I struggled through it and I always maintained um, where I needed to be and um, and still still graduated you know 17 out of out of 67 in my class that and that included all my scores my academic my driving my shooting and my physical training as well so I I, thought, I didn't think that was too bad for graduating 53 <laughs> and number 17 in my class what was it like being so much older than everyone else? We we had a conversation at one point when we were in uh <clears throat> in the gym and some of the some of the younger ones were talking about some stuff that they were doing and 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 I I looked at him and I said, "Wait a minute. What year were you born?" <laughs> we were chuckling about it and uh Most of them were born in like 93, 94 and I said oh my gosh, I was already a police officer. (laughs) My nickname in the academy, they used to call me mom. So that was a nice, I mean it it was very heartwarming and they all, they were all really, at first I think they were a little concerned that I could even make it. but then, about halfway through the academy, or probably a little sooner than that, they were they were all rooting for me, and they they were there in support, and you know, um, and I was kind of there. They, it was nice. They 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 treated me like a mom. You know, it was nice.
0: And when we come back, more with Wendy Caldwell's story, and my goodness, she was scared to become a mom, and then she was scared to become a cop again. And that happens in our lives, folks, and that's why we tell you stories like this and from our subjects' mouths themselves. When we come back, more of Wendy Caldwell's story here on Our American Stories. And if you have a story like this, and particularly these life-changing stories, the kids are out of the nest, you're sick of one career, you go to another, a divorce, a death, uh, something that really fundamentally shifts your life view and you've got to react and change, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Your stories are some of our favorites. When we come back, more of Wendy Caldwell's story after these commercial messages. we continue with the story of Wendy Caldwell, she had not worked for almost 20 years after staying at home with her kids. After she got a divorce, Wendy decided to go back to work for the Houston PD. That would make her the oldest cadet to graduate from that academy. We return to Wendy talking about how the other recruits in the academy treated her.
3: They used to razz me all the time and there was one guy in particular and he he used to kid me all the time and he'd say, you know, when you graduate, we're gonna we're gonna get you a life alert, and I said, oh, thanks a lot, I appreciate you. <laughs> and uh, he jokingly said one time, uh, he goes, well, maybe if we don't get you a life alert, we'll have to get you a walker when you graduate. And uh, coincidentally, I did I did graduate and cross the stage on a walker because during the last phase of training, um, my femur was broken, and. Uh, so I had to finish the academy on a walker. <laughs> Wendy actually
2: broke her femur during the final academy exercise. How did this happen?
3: It happened during an exercise called Redman, which is the culmination of your physical training for the entire academy. And um, they basically what our Redman does is it prepares you as a new police officer to understand what it feels like to be in a in the fight of your life um, because a lot of times you'll have recruits that come in that that may have never ever been in a fight in their life, um, you know, a scuffle or and most of them have never been punched in the face. So this is a little just a little taste of that to... Help you understand what it's like when you're chasing a suspect and you catch them, and they don't want to be arrested, and you guys are fighting. Um, and that's it's 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 um, it's intense, it's exhausting, um, and then you're fighting under the um, exhaustion, and uh, you know you're what it's like to fight with that diminished. Oxygen and mental capacity what you're thinking is going to be like during that time. Um, So it gives you a lot of different um, Things to think about Um, But it's used as a training tool at the very end of the Academy. So and unfortunately during my session um, the my red man gave me a a femur strike with the knee and uh, and broke my leg. Fortunately for me, I had completed um, all of the TCOL requirements necessary for the Academy with the exception of taking my exam. So at that point it was all I had to do was take the exam um, uh, to finish the Academy um, and then graduate, which was in two weeks. So they were Talking about recycling me, and you know, there was it, it was a little scary for me at the time because I, the first thought that went through my mind was, I went all this way and I'm not going to get to graduate. I'm, I'm going to have to do this whole thing again, and I I knew in my mind that I physically didn't think I had another six and a half months in me to do it. So it was it was tough. I mean, it was emotionally, it really it really messed with me a little bit because I thought, I'm not going to, this can't be happening. So luckily for me, um, my captain at the time over the academy, she was, they talked about it and they were like, oh no, she's done everything. All she has to do is take the exam. Um, My academic scores were, there wasn't an issue with that. So I took my My state licensing exam and passed that with flying colors, and they allowed me, graciously allowed me, to graduate with my class.
2: So how did being an officer in her 20s differ to being a police officer in her 50s?
3: I think your perspective changes dramatically once you have kids. And you realize that You're not this invincible, you're not this invincible person anymore. Um, You also, you have these little human beings to take care of. Um, So it changes your perspective on things a lot. You're a lot more cautious about things. You're, you know, and I also realize too that, that my age plays a little bit, more into that factor as well. I'm not as fast as I used to be. My reflexes are probably not as quick. I'm probably a little smarter though (laughs) because I can see it coming quicker. But uh, yeah, there's just a a whole lot. of It's just everything. Your perspective is the biggest change in the whole thing. You know, back when I was 30 I was invincible. You know, you get up, every day you're excited to go to work. You're running and gunning and, and loving, loving the, the chase and the thrill of the chase. And now it's like, what? Well, it's fun, but I'm not going to get all excited about it like I used to. <laughs> I need to be a little more cautious.
2: <laughs> How did her kids respond to her going back to the police force?
3: My kids were awesome. They were so supportive of me. And, um, They really were my biggest fans. They really, really were my, um, on the really, really hard days, you know, I just remember what they, that they were there and that I was doing this for them, you know, a lot of it was for them. So uh, when we were, a very poignant moment for me was when we were putting on our uniforms for graduation. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still on a walker and, you know, getting my uniform on and I uh, zip up that uniform shirt and um, I actually started crying because it was, it was a very emotional moment for me to realize that I had earned that, that shirt and badge and the privilege to, to wear that uniform one more time. And my kids were, they were amazing at my graduation. They were so, they were so excited. I think they were more excited than I was.
2: (laughs) What are Wendy's future plans?
3: I am actually 55 now. I graduated at the Academy at 53, so I'm 55 now. I'll be 56 coming up here shortly. Um, I am back at the mounted patrol unit, so I get to I'll probably, I'll probably stay here and end my career over here. It'll be a long one, but I'm not quite sure how many years we can do at this point, but as long as I can, I'm gonna stay here. You're never too old to do what you really wanna do, and sometimes when it's really, really hard, that's when you, that's when you get the best reward. You know that's, This was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's also been the most rewarding.
2: I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories.
0: And thank you to Wendy Caldwell, and great job, as always, Faith, on this story. I'm not sure how many years I have, but I'm going to stay as long as I can. She was doing it for her kids, and yet her kids, well, they were cheerleading on Mom. And it's a beautiful thing when people do these kind of things. We also got to hear... Well, what cops train for, right? And the circumstances they have to get into in their lives. They actually get trained to get punched in the face, to run down perps who might be on drugs or might be doing bad things to the community. And so anytime we get a chance, when we can walk in the shoes of others, including those in blue or those fighting overseas to defend us, understand their walk. It's harder than the rest of us. They're volunteering to fight against some really dark forces in the world and that could impact their lives. We're looking for your stories, too, always. These kinds of stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. Again, your stories are our favorites here. This is Our American Stories, a story of Wendy Caldwell, a story of love, a story of compassion, and in the end, what nerve and guts to go back into the academy in your 50s. What a choice, a beautiful choice. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and today we're celebrating famed advocate and philanthropist Helen Keller. We sent our Hillsdale intern, Shadrach, to her birthplace to learn more about this woman.
4: On June 27, 1880, in Tuscumbia, Alabama, Helen Keller was born. She was a healthy baby, born to a former Confederate captain and his wife on their homestead of Ivy Green. She lived a normal life for her first 19 months, but then disease struck. Doctors will often argue if it was either meningitis or scarlet fever. Whatever the answer, she would never see or hear again. Helen Keller began communicating using rudimentary sign language to talk with the daughter of the house cook. By age seven, she could communicate with her family using 60 special family signs. Even at this age, she began surmounting obstacles, learning how to guess someone's age and sex based solely on the vibrations that their feet made on the floor. I made a visit to Ivy Green and met Sue Pilkelton, the executive director of the Helen Keller Museum that's housed there. Under her leadership, tens of thousands of people a year visit the sleepy town of Tuscumbia, Alabama to see the Keller homestead.
5: Tuscumbia is not on an interstate, so you've got to know you're coming here to get here. We're very proud that we have between thirty-five and 40,000 visitors a year that come from all over the United States and the world. I always say we're not a state museum or a national. We are an international museum.
4: Ivy Green's museum encompasses Helen Keller's childhood home, preserving it for people of all ages to enjoy. As Helen Keller got older, her parents began seeking someone to teach her. Through the recommendation of famed inventor of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, they found the Perkins Institute for the Blind. The school assigned Ann Sullivan, a former student who was visually impaired, to be Keller's instructor. Ann Sullivan was to teach Keller before she attended school in earnest, which was a long and arduous process. Sue described the beginning of this journey.
5: When Ann Sullivan arrived here in Tuscumbia, she realized that Helen Keller was very spoiled. But of course, Captain and Mrs. Keller did not know how to deal with a child that had become deaf and blind. So basically, they just let her do whatever she wanted to do. And when Aunt Sullivan came, she decided real quick, I've got to get her away from the family and get control of her. So they put her in the carriage, which was 640 acres, and they drove her all around. And she thought she was going far away, but she just actually came next door to the main house.
4: Sullivan signed words into Keller's hands, attempting to communicate basic concepts like doll or mug. Helen often became frustrated and lashed out, leading to physical altercations between the two. But Sullivan persisted and eventually reached a breakthrough.
5: And took her out to the water pump and she began to pump water and spelling it in Helen's hands. And at first she didn't understand it. And then all of a sudden it was like the key just opened her brain and her mind. And she learned water. That was her first word. So she spelt that into Annie's hand. And that day she learned 30 words. So the pump, that's where the breakthrough came.
4: People often associate Helen Keller with that moment at the water pump. The moment where the world opened up before her. Sue told me about her experience with the people that come to visit that water pump. Helen Keller toured the world during her lifetime and left an impression on people from every major nation. But that impact was especially felt in Japan of all places.
5: Yesterday we had 25 visitors from Japan that could not speak any English whatsoever. But when they got outside and saw the water pump, They begin to speak and take pictures. And I often say that little black pump speaks many languages because they definitely know when they get here and they see that pump, what the pump is all about.
4: And that little black pump spoke volumes to the Japanese people, something easy to notice when you see the sheer amount of Japanese Helen Keller paraphernalia on display in the museum. However, to Sue, the most important guests are those who share Helen Keller's struggles.
5: You know, we want everyone that comes to the Birthways of Helen Keller to leave here with a great positive uh, experience. But when we have someone that comes here, like Helen, we take up a lot of time and we want them to know that it's very important that they get the full experience of touring the home and grounds. And it's very important. That is our mission. We want everyone to be excited and have a wonderful experience but most of all, someone with a disability.
4: Perhaps the most famous rendition of Helen Keller's story is the play and later film, The Miracle Worker. Every year, Ivy Green sponsors performances of the play, making sure to accommodate those with disabilities.
5: Last Thursday night, we gave a special performance of The Miracle Worker for a group of deaf or deafblind people uh, throughout the state. They had a convention at Joe Wheeler State Park and they came. And it was amazing to watch their facial reactions as they were experiencing the pump. And, and the play itself, they really understood. And you know, as a sighted person, many times we take things for granted, but it was amazing by the end of it, how emotional this group of people who were deaf or deafblind or just blind, really reacted to experiencing the miracle worker.
4: After her encounter with the water pump, Helen began school in earnest, all the while dreaming of attending college. Sue described the journey that was Helen's education.
5: Helen Keller was the first deafblind to ever go to college. She went to Radcliffe College. Through the years, Helen had a lot of obstacles, and they didn't want her because of her disability. And she said, no, I want to go. So they put her in the room and uh, made her take all kind of tests without Ann Sullivan being by her side and she scored so extremely high they had to allow her to attend Radcliffe College.
4: When Keller graduated she began working as an advocate for the blind. She traveled the world raising money and spurring people into action all with Ann Sullivan at her side and despite her success as an advocate she always resented her inability to speak normally here is Helen Keller herself speaking with the assistance of Anne Sullivan.
6: It is not blindness or deafness that brings me my darkest hours. It is not blindness or deafness that bring me my darkest hours. It is the attitude that I put meant. In not being able to speak normally. It is the acute disappointment in not being able to speak normally. But rather than this sorrowful experience, I understand wonderfully. But out of this sorrowful experience, I understand more. All poorly. human striving. What ambition. ambition. And the infinite capacity of hope.
4: The infinite capacity of hope. Despite these challenges, Helen continued. And even though she was unable to speak normally, she stirred something in the hearts of the crowds as she addressed. The inspiration of One Woman's Fight set in motion a new worldwide appreciation for the struggles of the deaf and the blind. Ivy Green hosts a yearly camp for children that inspires them to persist despite their disabilities, much in the same way that Miss Keller did.
5: We have started a new camp here at the birthplace in the fall, and it's called Camp Courage, a Helen Keller experience. Uh, we invite children that's grades four through six that are deaf, or blind, or both, or even just have uh, sight or hearing disability. But they come, and they eat around the dining room table, and they do candle making, and they use the scents of ivy green, which Helen Keller often talked about, the magnolia, and the roses, because blind people see through smell. And then we have team building. And that's very important to these children because so many of them are so withdrawn. They don't deal with other kids very well. But when they get here and they realize that the other children have the same disability, they really bond with each other.
4: This is all made possible through the charitable donations of private donors. Funny enough, a Japanese-American doctor initially financed the camp. It was her strength that inspired so many people. And Helen Keller's legacy is far more than a story. Her tenacity and willingness to strive has persisted long after her death, which would not have been possible without the adversity that she faced.
5: I truly believe if Helen Keller had not been deaf and blind, the work that is being done today would have never been done because that she dedicated her life to let people know You may be blind, you may be deaf, you may be deaf-blind, but if you set your mind to it, you can do all things. You may have a disability, but you can do anything if you set your mind to it. But that was Helen Keller's mission. You know, don't look at me as a deaf person or a blind person. Look at me as a person. I can do all things because I've set my mind to it. I went to school. I work every day. I don't want pity.
4: I don't want pity. Helen Keller's story itself holds the power to inspire and continues to inspire countless people, despite her death in 1968. Thanks to Ivy Green and Lions International, that little black water pump will continue its mission for generations.
0: And great work to our Hillsdale intern, Shadrach, and that's Hillsdale College. And this is the story of Helen Keller. And it comes from Tuscumbia, Alabama, the home of the Helen Keller Museum. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of an American legend.
1: the ongoing story of America's economic and business history, it happens again and again. One person with imagination and nerve gets an idea and develops into an industry and then into part of American life.
7: And one man thought that every American should have television. Believe it or not, not too long ago, many outside of the largest cities didn't. They couldn't. In 1952, the year the Corvette came to life and David Hasselhoff was born, Hills and mountains would get in the way of households in rural areas and small towns receiving the signals of what's called broadcast television, ABC, NBC, and the only handful of channels that existed then, which was TV rich, but is TV poor compared to today. Now imagine you have zero video products in your life, and that was the life of Bill Daniels until he said enough for all of us. Well, there's got to be a way that you can get television to small towns. I don't know what that way is, but there's got to be a way. That way? Cable TV. Antennas in our local areas that pick up television signals and then send them through long cables to each one of our homes. A lot of the public take it
8: for granted because they were raised on it. Uh, I was not. It hit me... uh, the age of 32, and I thought, holy mackerel. Every community in America today gets as much or more television than New York, Chicago, or San Francisco, and
7: ain't that something. Daniels also thought that it could bring everyone, even the supposedly TV-rich city slickers, more than the five to eight network and local channels that they had, with programming that was endless.
8: You ain't seen nothing yet. You'll say the day you have 100, 200 channel choice of programming. Uh, Some of the people say I wouldn't know what to choose if I had that many channels, but uh, God, it's just getting started.
7: This vision and his dogged pursuit of it led him to be known by another name. The
8: father of cable television. A
1: man who's called the father of cable television.
7: He
9: was tagged with the title of father of the cable television industry. I think he basically was the dad that said, come on, guys, here's where we're going, and we're going to get there.
8: I've been in the cable business for 40 years. A lot of people call me the father of cable television. I guess that's because I'm so damn old, but... uh... We have in our company, believe it or not, over the years, probably owned and operated more systems than anybody in the
7: country. But growing up, Bill didn't have more of anything. We were a poor family. And my dad sold
8: life insurance to farmers during the Depression. Now that's tough, friends. <laughs> and let me tell you, hungry, no clothes. If you were, went through the Depression it was a real incentive to a lot of us to say god someday i'm gonna do something about this i'll never forget that i said to my dad once when i was 10 years old i said dad when we grow up and get rich can i have a little henry bar
9: <laughs>
8: uh, i can remember my dad taking their four children in our family down to have a nice green cone, and that was a big deal to us it was a nickel and I was sitting next to my dad, and I said, can I have two? He belted me <laughs> to try to teach me that i would be unlucky so lucky to have one. I graduated from my Navy fighter pilot training two weeks after Pearl Harbor, and it wasn't planned that way. People say to me, you know, you were a hero, you volunteered, you knew we were going to have a war. Baloney. I had no idea that was going to happen. My timing was bad in that case, so uh, I ended up... Uh, Saw a lot of action in World War II, and I think I'm like, like a lot of guys. Uh, it rubbed off on me that I was going to be glad to get out of there alive. I was going to work hard and count my blessings every day that I was still walking around.
7: And that's exactly what he did back at home and working in the family insurance business.
8: If your ambition is to make money and to get a good job,
7: I can't emphasize enough. The
8: way you handle yourself, how important it is. And regardless of where you are. When I first got out of the Navy, my dad had an oil insurance business. And we're a little town in New Mexico. Hobbs, New Mexico. You haven't lived till you've been there. <laughs> and I was a notary public. How do you like that? And every time I sign my name to a piece of paper, I got a port. A guy walked in my office one day with khaki clothes on and he had 20 documents he wanted notarized. I notarized every one of them. He said, what are you? Now, 20 times 25, I think that'd been five bucks that I made. And I said, nothing sir, hey, we're happy to have you in our city, come back anytime, let me know what I can do for you. Thank you, appreciate that. A guy walks in my office about three years later, three piece suit. And he, by that time, owned seven drilling rigs. And he laid the insurance account on my lap and said, I want you to write the insurance on this. And over a two-year period of time, my brother and I, my dad had died in the meantime. About $600,000 in insurance premiums into our little company. What's the point of the story? I said to the guy, why do you give me the business? He said, I came in here three years ago. And you notarized some papers for me, and you didn't charge me. And you couldn't have been nicer and more polite. You never know.
0: You never know. And what a good lesson to learn about almost anything in life. And it's sometimes you're helping somebody who will one day help you, but that's not why you did it. And when we come back, we're going to learn so much more about the unlikely father of cable television, Bill Daniels. And by the way, in World War II, this Navy fighter pilot fought at Midway, Guadalcanal, and the invasion of the Philippines. He saw real action. And by the way, he was called back to duty for the Korean War II. When we come back, this Remarkable American Story, Bill Daniels' story, here on Our American Story. We continue here with our American stories and with the story of the unlikely father of cable television, Bill Daniels. Let's continue the story. In
7: 1952, Daniels was driving from New Mexico to Wyoming where he was starting an insurance business. And when he stopped in a Denver bar for a meal, he saw something that he had never seen before. I was 32 before I ever saw television. I saw it in Denver in a bar
8: prize fight and I happen to be a prize fight fan and uh, when I first looked at it I thought what an invention that is. Picture and sound into a home at the same time. I couldn't get over that. And my reaction was wow that is some invention and I look forward to seeing more television when I get to Capitol
7: Wyoming. But he got there and there was no television. I thought, there's got to
8: be a way that you can get television in a small town. I don't know what that way is, but there's got to be a way. So I went to work on the project and got it done.
7: Being the first to use microwave technology to relay a broadcast signal. And according to his colleague Gene Schneider, those early days were precarious.
8: We were taking in
9: $1,500 a month, and we were spending about $15,000.
7: But the Casper Cable System they built soon won the business of 4,000 subscribers, one-third of the area's homes.
8: I was the president of our National Cable Television Association, the second president, and there were about 500 systems in the country. And I had people call me saying they either wanted to buy a cable system or sell one. And I'd put buyers and sellers together. Would not take a fee because I didn't think I could. because in my view, I was part of the National Trade Association. I didn't think it was proper. No. Students, there's integrity. But a light went up over my head. And I said, there's a business here. I think it can be a hell of a business.
7: And it did become a hell of a business. Here's the later president of Daniels and Associates, John Siemens.
9: He was the only one doing that. You know, this was too small for Wall Street. So it was primarily Bill and his persona that were causing whatever few deals were being made to happen.
7: But that doesn't mean that things were easy. They weren't. Here's John on telling his employer that he was leaving to work for Bill and the credit report that they ran on him.
9: It was horrible. I mean, it was just horrible. <laughs> the, the debts way exceeded, so Bill's line about they tell me I'm a millionaire was purely part of the hype and the persona that he had created anything but true. But yet, he had made such an impression on me that it didn't matter. I thought, here is a true leader In an industry whether I know I didn't know much about the industry I didn't know its potential I didn't have its vision but this guy did and I thought I'm going to be way better off hitching my wagon to him than I am staying where I am so the fear of this guy is in danger of not being able to pay his bills for whatever reason as a young guy with a family didn't have a negative effect on me. But those were very difficult times. Every two weeks was a payroll challenge. The business was very unpredictable. The brokerage side of the business was feast or famine. You could work a long time on a transaction, and it wouldn't close. So you'd have a lot of travel and other expenses associated with trying to get the engagement and complete it. And at the end of the day, you could end up with nothing in the basket.
7: Here's Bill on a secret sauce for taking on these challenges.
8: Just to to give you my credentials, uh, you're looking at a guy who has very little formal education. I have never had an IQ test, so I don't even know what my IQ is. I'm afraid to take it, by the way. And I never thought I was very smart, and I still don't. My business career has been successful because I've hired good people, and I know my faults. And as you go through your practice and business, the sooner you recognize your weak points and cover those positions with competent people, the better off you'll be, believe me
7: bill survived and thrived but his competition in network and local tv were used to having no competition and tried to use the force of government to make he and cable goners
8: we went along for about five years and uh we weren't a very exciting business but we had a monopoly and we uh provided something the public wanted at a fair price After about five years, we served about two million subscribers nationwide. Today, we serve almost 60% of the homes in the country. But let me list for you the people after five years thought that we were a threat to them and the enemies that we had in the cable television business. How's this for a lineup? ABC, CBS, NBC, at and local television stations, the Federal Communications Commission, the Congress, including both the House and the Senate, all the lawyers in Washington D.C., the representative broadcasters, most city governments, most county governments, and most state governments. Now that's pretty tough, isn't it? My attitude at that time, I was about 30. 233 along in there, was, well, now, wait a minute. If all of these people are busting their a- to stop our business from succeeding, you know, we must have some. <laughs> if we didn't, then they could care less about us, right?
9: He often wrote letters to congressmen and others about pending regulations and say things like, I didn't go off to fight a battle in the Pacific to fight for the country's freedoms, to have you throw in a bunch of regulations that make it impossible for me to do business. He had great intuition. He looked at every opponent as an opponent that we could ultimately win over, as opposed to one that we had to destroy. And I think that was a unique characteristic about Bill. He. In, in the very early days, when the cable industry was fighting its big battles with broadcasters, Bill regularly read Broadcasting Magazine. He regularly communicated with people who were accomplished and recognized in Broadcasting Magazine. Bill, even though the broadcasting industry were basically our enemies trying to do us harm, Bill would take that picture from Broadcasting Magazine, have it mounted on a plaque, shellacked, with the guy or gal's name on the bottom of it, the date of the publication, and he'd send him a note: "Congratulations." It didn't make any difference whether this guy was president of NBC or, you know, an engineer in Sacramento. If they were on that back page, Bill was going to send them a note, and they were going to get a plaque. So Bill was engaging the enemy while many were trying to destroy the enemy and they were trying to destroy us. As a result, I think Bill had an entree that made it very possible for us later on to play a big role in bringing broadcasters, newspaper organizations into the ownership of the cable industry and come into the tent as opposed to be outside as our enemy
7: to put it mildly bill's big tent won here's NVC, and daniels the perfect marriage broker the man who did much to connect the nation
8: from nebraska farmhouses to park avenue penthouses two-thirds of american homes now are wired for cable
7: here's bill with his colleagues at daniels and associates
8: all of you who have uh made this company such a success. I really appreciate it. A company is people. People make the company. I don't make it. The product doesn't make it. The people make it. And I just want you to know I'm awful damn proud of all of you.
0: And you've been listening to the voice of Bill Daniels. And my goodness, so many Americans got to enjoy television across this great country because of cable and now are enjoying Internet services. And my goodness, the type and quantity of content that Bill probably couldn't have imagined even in the year 2000. It's been so remarkable what's happened in the area of content and content delivery in this country. And when we come back, we'll continue with more of the story of Bill Daniels. And my goodness, him saying a company is people is so true. And A man with great intuition and great integrity knew that his greatest decisions were in the people he chose and how he took care of them. When we continue more of the life of the father of cable television, Bill Daniels, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and the story of Bill Daniels, who brought the wonderful world of cable television, well, to all of us, and was richly rewarded for doing so. Let's return to his story.
8: I guess it's kind of like if you go to heaven, you'd believe in there's religion on earth. (laughs) And I've been so lucky and so successful that I have to be a champion, I guess, of the free enterprise system. Uh, But I've studied other governments. You know, I've been to Russia uh, if all people in this country have to do is go to a foreign country that is either socialistic or a dictatorship or communistic, and then you really appreciate the free enterprise system. You live in a marvelous country. I've said many times the eighth wonder of the world is a free enterprise system, and the ninth wonder of the world is so few
7: people understand it. Here's John Seaman
9: so bill loved the business of business he loved being an entrepreneur and he loved the free enterprise system that enabled entrepreneurship to be successful
8: while entrepreneurs are in vogue today 30 years ago not so much so but since you're in this class let me name a few early entrepreneurs henry Ford, what busted a couple times walt disney Went broke before he got going. Arm and hammer, bought an oil company for a tax shelter. And what happened? They discovered oil. <laughs> uh, King Gillette. King Gillette invested in, invented the Gillette razor. The first year he sold 57 razors. But an entrepreneur. And God love him, the entrepreneur of all time, great Kroc good friend of mine made a statement that I dearly love. He was so motivated and so ambitious. And somebody said to him one day, Ray, the country is becoming too saturated with McDonald's. He said, my a- <laughs> saturation is for sponges. <laughs> I had no money as a kid. I didn't have any money when I started. And uh, I don't think money is everything. But by the same token, I think my biggest uh, my biggest accomplishment is my success in my business, and I hope that I can continue to share my good fortune with others. The quote that uh, that I've used so many times, they don't have luggage rack on hearses. You can't take it with you. And, uh, While I'm alive, I want to have some fun with my giving, and uh, it's fun to pick your charities while you're still kicking and uh, can watch people uh, enjoy and share with me my good fortune.
7: Here's the former president of Daniels & Associates, Tom Marinkovich.
9: Bill was one to give people second chances, and there's a lot of uh, examples of that. The ones I keep running into uh, and remembering really was all the young people that he put through colleges and that he gave jobs
7: to. And he did this off the cuff. Whenever Bill saw an opportunity to help someone who deserved an opportunity but didn't have one, this wasn't a formal scholarship program at all. And that led to some interesting problems.
9: In fact, at times that presented me a problem because I was trying to get the budgets organized, and I've had to be a little tough on people, about adding people, and all of a sudden, Bill would come in with two or three new young people, and he wouldn't take no for an answer. And uh, he ultimately helped those young people, and he checked on them, and he made sure they were responsible for their academics and their job performance after they came aboard.
7: After Bill passed away, he left $1 billion to his foundation, the Daniels Fund, which has already given away nearly a billion. And one of their signature programs is a more formal scholarship program. Here's John Seaman speaking before the new class of Daniels Scholars in 2017.
9: I'm told over 2,000 applied for the Daniels Scholarship this year. 482 made it to the interview process. 235 were awarded Daniel Scholars. Just a reflection on cost of education today and the value of this scholarship. Depending on the school and other factors, four years of college today is going to cost approximately $150,000. If you finance that amount based on the federal student loan rate, you would be paying back 1,000 a month for 30 years. So as I look out on those of you who are here tonight with these scholarships, I say congratulations because you've won the lottery. However, what you've done is better than the lottery, and the reason is because a lottery is strictly blind luck. You, on the other hand, because of the characteristics that are defined by the Daniel Scholarship Program, through your character, leadership, and community service, you came by your scholarship honestly. Congratulations to all of you.
7: Here's Bill on his experience that inspired another extracurricular activity.
8: I gotta tell you folks, I've been thrown out of more banks than anybody in the world. (laughs) My first visit to a bank was after World War II, and I was 25, and I had never been in a bank. I wanted to buy a car, and my first visit to the bank... I felt like I was either going in for brain surgery or the defendant in a murder trial. Banks are intimidating. Wouldn't it be nice when a young person is 20 years old and just graduated from college or 21 and already have good credit on his own? Well, why not give them an opportunity at a young age
7: to learn more on how to deal with a bank? Bill's idea was to create a bank that's only for young Americans. But that meant getting the approval of government regulators. It sounds like a
9: simple, wonderful idea, and by tomorrow morning, if we all got our heads together, we ought to be able to have a bank up and running. But it didn't work that way, and it seemed like every step that Bill took ended up being a no. But for many of us that know Bill well, no many times is looked at as a sign of encouragement to Bill. (laughs) Oh, I think they they like us.
7: So in any event, the bank opened with great fanfare. Here's Linda Childers, the founding president of Young Americans Bank, on the over 91,000 accounts that have been opened.
6: Bill would just be so proud of that. He would just get tickled. He would come into the bank lobby and just kind of sit in the back of the bank and watch kids do their business, and it was Such a kick to him to see this, and especially if they wanted to start a business. You know, he really loved to hear about their business, their business plans, and how he could be helpful to them.
0: And we've been listening to the story of Bill Daniels. And Bill's foundation, the Daniels Fund, is sponsoring this great story as part of their celebration of his 100th birthday this year and the 20th anniversary of the foundation. They focus on Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, the four states that most affected Bill's life. And in addition to the Daniels Scholars and Young Americans Bank that you heard about, the foundation makes grants to nonprofits in areas like ethics, youth development, education reform, addiction, and amateur sports. And you can learn more about their work at danielsfund.org. And while there, also pick up an incredibly beautiful book, on Bill's life that has so much more to offer on this profoundly American story. And my goodness, that Bill Daniels created all these jobs, got TV into the houses and homes of people across this country, not just the people in the big cities, but doing what Sam Walton did too, because Sam Walton was able to bring lower prices to people on every variety of product and service uh, through Walmart, and we brought you his terrific story. And this only free enterprise can do It is truly the eighth wonder of the world, as Bill said, and it has lifted so many people out of poverty and given us all the goods, products, services, innovation that only free enterprise can drive and deliver. When we come back, more of the life of this incredible American story, more about Bill Daniels and his life story here on Our American Story. We continue with the final portion of Bill Daniels' extraordinary life story. In the 1980s and 90s, Bill gave over $22 million to what became the Daniels College of Business at the University of Denver, and he insisted that ethics and etiquette be a mandatory part of the curriculum.
8: The reason I did is, uh, first, you got, all you got to do is read the Wall Street Journal every morning, and you'll see what's going on in some of the higher financial circles of our country. Uh, this, and that disturbs me. And the second reason is I've been fortunate and in, I've interviewed probably a hundred young men and women in this company who are MBAs and I've been amazed while they have technical skills they're well educated technically what little they know about what goes on in the real world. I have a great nephew that graduated from Harvard Business School uh, about three years ago now in my employ and I asked him one day if at the Harvard Business School if there were any courses on ethics and integrity no I then checked with Stanford University no I then checked with the other hotshot schools Dartmouth Yale and I think uh, Horton I'm not sure else none of them offered a course in ethics and integrity
7: And the Daniels Fund has since expanded Bill's ethics initiative and are partnering with more business schools, law schools, high schools, police departments across the country, and an online case bank that anyone can access, reaching a total of more than one million Americans so far. With heavy emphasis on ethics, integrity, manners,
8: communicating with people, answering your phone, answering your mail, treating Everybody in your company with decency, treating your fellow man with decency, giving back to your community. Now that's a pretty big order.
7: And Bill just didn't talk a big game, he lived it. And even when he had nothing to his name, here's the president of the Daniels Fund, Linda Childers.
6: So after Bill returned from the military, he moved to the state of Wyoming and started working in the insurance business and he sold a policy to a warehouse owner, and Bill was proud of himself. It was a great, a great deal, and went on down the road, and I think it was about a year later, there was an accident at the warehouse, and someone was killed, and they filed the claim, and Bill was horrified to find out that the reinsurance company had declared bankruptcy, and he felt that his integrity was on the line because he'd sold that policy, but there was nothing to be paid from the insurance company, so Bill Daniels as a young worker, paid that claim himself. The claim was twelve thousand dollars. Bill paid that five hundred dollars a month by juggling his finances to make that work. It was more than he made, but it was important to him that his word was as good as gold. He was going to make that straight because he was then square with himself. That's who he was, and that's what mattered to him and his reputation. And I think with Bill it It wasn't that he said, I'm going to be honest and and I'm going to do these things here because it's going to have long-term payoff. I think when he was a young man, he just did it because it was the right thing. And somewhere along the line, he said, wow, this is working pretty well for me. My reputation really does matter in the cable business.
8: I had to take bankruptcy with a basketball team that I owned in the state of Utah. It was the Utah Stars. We were the league champions. Times were tough and my bank shut off my credit. So uh, I had to get all my players together, all my staff, and said, we've got to shut her down. And I was miserable, let me tell you. I was crying, and I was on the 10th floor of the Travel Inn in Salt Lake City, Utah. And my lawyer is a graduate of this fine institution, a guy named Bob Nagel. And I said, Bob, I'm so heartbroken, I'm going to jump out the window. He said, Bill, the luck you're having, you're going to live. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the reason I tell you the story is I had temporarily stiffed citizens in Salt Lake City for $750,000 for season tickets that they'd been paid for and no more ball games. And we owed creditors and that bothered the hell out of me. About six years later, I went by, made a couple of deals. And I went back to Salt Lake City and I paid every creditor with interest of 8% since the date I shut them down. And boy, did I feel good about that. I really felt good now the moral of that story is today some 18 years later I meet people in all over the country that say aren't you the guy that paid off the season ticket holders in Salt Lake City and I say yes that's me now what I'm saying to you is I did not think that was such a big deal at the time I just didn't want to have to live with myself what I'm telling you is future lawyers and business people is that's a case of examples of ethics and integrity that come back to you that you never dreamed would come back to you. It sure isn't the reason I went over there. I went over there because I had to look in the mirror in the morning when I shaved. Don't get the impression that I'm an angel. I'm far from it.
7: And Bill wasn't joking. Here he is with refreshing honesty about his flaws.
8: You know, uh in my world of business you got to get along with people you got to have a sense of humor you got to be able to make fun of yourself so let me take three minutes and say to you that while the introductions are nice that steve gives me we've all got skeletons in our closet i'm sure all of you are perfect but <laughs> when i finish you'll know that i'm the kind of a guy that lays on the line so let me tell you a few things that it does not say in my resume uh, but it'll tell you one thing about me, I'm honest. Uh, I have a long-term relationship with the Colorado Motor Vehicle Department,
1: <laughs> and the, uh,
8: Colorado State Highway Patrol, and the same in California where I spend a lot of time. Uh, I lost the governor's race in the state of Colorado. Uh, I lost $5 million in the professional sports business I had been married and divorced four times, Uh, I lost $500,000 on a Ferris wheel for cars, (laughs) which I thought was the greatest invention of all time. You drove the car on this thing and it rotated this way and it saved ground space, it was a hell of a deal, I thought. I met guys that said, I've never made a bad deal in my life. Well, let me tell you something, folks. When somebody says that, they've never been in many deals. Because uh, those of us who are in and out of speculated deals all the time, we've lost a bundle. Uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a graduate of the Betty Ford Center in uh, Rancho Ross, California. Uh, I'm at a drink uh, a year, April the 2nd. Uh, I've made and lost several fortunes. Uh, but I gotta tell you, I've had a ball. My brother went to Harvard, incidentally, and I'm not bragging about that. I have virtually no education, but when people compare myself with my brother, I tell them my brother went to Yale and I went to jail.
6: <laughs>
8: the reason I do is because I have been in jail four times, and I was picked up for drunken driving on four different occasions in California. And it was at that time that I made up my mind that I had too many things left in my lifetime to let alcohol get the best of me.
7: Here's John Seaman. I
9: can't tell you how many times I heard him either in public statements or in letters or in conversation with people say, my primary goal is I want to go to heaven. Well, you don't think of Bill as a religious person. I've never thought of Bill as a religious person. But there's, a, there's an instinct there that defined Bill as a very unique person to be so conscious at all times of that being his primary goal.
8: When you put your life in perspective, you realize how little time there is to make something truly significant out of your life. To some people, this might mean acquiring a lot of possessions to others building a business or owning property and there are those whose lives wouldn't be fulfilled unless they achieve fame and fortune happens to be my personal belief that what you live that others can benefit by and what you're able to teach the younger generation if you leave your life that way, you lead this world with a clear conscience, and you might even have a smile on your face.
0: And great job as always to Alex and a very special thanks to the Daniels Fund for providing so much of the source material. What a life lived. Integrity, we hear a lot about, we hear about intuition, free enterprise. And by the way, integrity is is not just a business proposal. It's a way of life. And in the end, if you're doing it because you think you'll get something back, it's a real bad reason to do it. And Bill understood that from an early age, making sure that that life insurance policy got paid out, making sure those ticket holders, well, that they got paid too. Also, the honesty of this guy, sharing what he shared with an audience over a three-minute period, failed marriages, struggles with alcohol. It just makes him that much more real and that that much more of a powerful story not glossing over the realities of life and the failures of life but in the end wanting to get to heaven is his primary goal and that distinguishes him from so many people that run businesses more I wish had that stated claim Bill Daniel's story the father of cable television a classic american story if ever there was one here on our american story